In recent weeks, atmospheric rivers have been a big part of the news in the western United States. These narrow plumes of water vapor can provide significant rainfall to much of the west coast, in fact, up to 30 to 40 to 50 percent. Today, my guest, Dr. Upmanu Law, the director of the Columbia Water Center, and the Allen and Carol Silberstein Professor of Engineering, will discuss moving atmospheric rivers. We'll also get into his research and activities around water in general. Dr. Law, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thanks very much, Dr. Shepard. Pleasure to join you today, and I look forward to having a nice discussion. Well, you know, I have to initiate you to Weather Geeks right out of the gate because there's a question that I ask every single guest of the podcast. I usually ask, how did you become or are you a weather geek? But in this case, are you a water geek? <laughs> well, it's uh, I'm just a geek. It's probably me, me too. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll that's yeah. why we we revel in that. That's why we named the podcast Weather Geeks. We 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 wear it with pride. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I get interested very easily in many things, and so that's my calling, I guess. Yeah. And, and I mean, you are very well known. I'm, you know, when I saw that you were our guest, I was really excited. I want to give uh, the listeners a bit of your background. As I mentioned in the intro, you are the director of the Columbia Water Center and the Allen and Carol Silverstein Professor of Engineering. Uh, you've got broad interest in hydrology, climate dynamics, water resources, risk management, sustainability, a lot of the things that I'm really interested in myself and my own research. So how, how did you take us down the road uh, to how you ended up in this regard? I mean, what, what did you study in graduate school and what brought you to this point? Sure. So um, I actually will preface that by saying I had no idea what I wanted to really study in graduate school. And so I got accepted into graduate programs in things ranging from psychology to soil mechanics to hydrology. And the main reason I chose hydrology, I guess, were two. One was that all my friends from India were going to schools in the Northeast or on the West Coast. And uh, my hydrology offer was from the University of Texas at Austin. And having seen all the Westerns, I wanted to be in Texas. So that was one reason. But the other was that you know, when I was a kid, this is about the time that um, the Apollo moon landing happened. So that was really exciting for me. But uh, in the same year, we used to have Life magazine delivered to our house in India. And the cover of it had a fellow called Vanti Chow, who was a professor at the University of Illinois. And they had him standing under a rainfall simulator. Uh, and he was shown. Uh, in a mock landscape in the lab that had been created, trying to study water flow uh, consequent to rainfall. And I thought that was really interesting. That's, that's, that's fascinating. That would have hooked me as well. I mean, that, that type of engagement. Now, speaking of rainfall simulators, we have something very real. It's not a simulator at all. Yeah. That's been a, a, in, in the news uh, much of the last couple of weeks. And that's the atmospheric river events that we've seen. Uh, talk to our listeners. Give our listeners a, just a basic 101 on what atmospheric rivers are. Okay, so um, the formal identification of this term probably goes back to Reggie Newell, who was an MIT professor. He wrote a paper in 1992 
where which was called tropospheric rivers and uh, it totally caught my attention it you know it it wasn't something that was popular for a while after that actually but what he did was that he used satellites to identify organized moisture fluxes in roughly half a dozen locations uh, as birthplaces of these things across the planet all in the tropical oceans primarily in the tropical pacific and what he showed was that the instantaneous flux or amount of water that was being moved by these rivers was two to three times the flow of the amazon river which is the largest land river and that totally got my attention i was going boy this is brilliant of course these only last for a week or two weeks and then they die off but then they are reborn so my reaction was wow this is cool you know and so i got hooked to the idea of atmospheric rivers but i'll say that uh since you're the weather channel i'll give credit to the journalistic community as well uh, i used to teach at the university of utah in the 80s and there was a meteorologist on channel 2 uh called mark ubanks and this guy used to get super excited about the pineapple express storms that were coming in same thing as the atmospheric river so today what's happened is that people have come up with a formal definition of this for whatever it's worth and the definition is that this is a moisture flux that is between 50 to 150 kilometers wide and has a certain amount of flux associated with it and it's uh, averaged over 1000 to 700 millibars so th- so that's how it gets defined um now- and just for the listeners that aren't as versed in the sort of atmospheric terminology sometimes in the weather world we talk about vertical height in terms of pressure so uh, a 1000 millibars is close to the surface and as we go up you know 700 millibars we're actually going up so i just wanted to right. clarify that because we do have a range of listeners yeah no thank you for doing that yeah so so that you know is a definition however when i started working on it which was a while back uh such definitions didn't exist and i have a hard time staying with norms so uh we've been distinguishing between atmospheric rivers and uh tropical moisture exports because sometimes you know you get storms that don't meet these criteria but really are basically similar and they are all born in the tropics and move on so i use those two terms exchangeably essentially now uh more on this that's exciting is that uh in the work that we have done we started working backwards because i'm a hydrologist i'm interested in you know okay there's a major flood here where did that water come from and in the 1970s when i went to school hydrologists were basically taught about convection so the idea was that there was local moisture that went up and then it came down as a big rain and you know they talked about a spatial correlation scale that if there's a storm happening the peak rainfall if you center yourself at the peak rainfall the rainfall basically dissipates about 10 kilometers from the center and i'd always really wondered you know how does this gel with when i'm living in utah rather than in the midwest or somewhere because the storms don't look like that at all right and so when i read about the atmospheric rivers my reaction was oh yeah this is cool so this is like a new window on what people call fronts because it's not just a front it's it's a massive front that is organized and keeps on coming right so uh we started looking using something called lagrangian tracking which basically looks at particle by particle but we do that backwards 
So we look at the place where the big flood happened and we work backwards to where did the moisture come from. So we did this worldwide. We basically said we'll take any flood event that was larger than a 10-year return period. So, you know, a storm that would happen once, once in 10 years on average, right? So pretty big event. And for every one of those events, uh, we were finding that this was related to something that looked like an atmospheric river. So this was not what I'd been taught as a hydrologist. And I was ready to throw the book out, you know, so I basically do not cover the traditional junk in the hydrology class anymore. Is what <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway, the, the, the fun thing with this was that once we started doing this game, uh, it was like a light bulb went off in the heads of myself and my students, because we found that there were only about a dozen places in the world where these storms were born. Bingo. So then I'm thinking that, wow, if I look at uh, atmospheric conditions and I look at the oceanic conditions, given that there's only a dozen places you can have these things be born at, roughly, uh, we should be able to nail the prediction of these things. Well, that didn't really go anywhere. It was embarrassing. And the analogy I'll give you is, so imagine that you have a hose that's connected to the faucet. Well, the source is pretty well defined, right? Okay, now let's say that this faucet puts out an enormous amount of pressure such that it's hard for you to actually hold the hose in place. Now the hose is going to wiggle and wag uh, all over the place. So damn, you know, so my source is known, but my receiving location can be all over the bloody place. So much for predictability. Yeah, So welcome to our world of meteorologists. Yes. Right, <laughs> yeah. So you know, I started thinking about this for a while, and I'm trying to get to your question about can we move these things around, right? So at this point, the story that should be apparent to the listener is, hey, you can't predict anything about it, so you're not going to do a damn thing like that, right? But interesting thing is that essentially the way these atmospheric rivers work is, so let's say they are born around 5 to 10 degrees north in the northern hemisphere, uh, and it's in the Pacific Ocean. So initially, this moisture uh, or a component of the moisture that's being evaporated at that location starts moving polewards. And at that point, the movement is very coherent. If you try to disturb it, you can't do anything with it. it and it's very predictable. Like the climate model is very good at predicting the next time step and the time step after that and so on. Now, because of the Coriolis effect, this starts curving to the right. And, and the Coriolis of force, I will, I'll jump in. Yeah, please. Uh, that's due to the rotation of the earth, which actually impacts many of our large scale weather processes. Right. Yeah. So this starts curving to the right. And then eventually, by the time you get to 25, 30, 35 degrees north, it is going to intersect with the jet stream or pressure systems associated with the jet stream. And now it's basically moving along with those depressions and you have landfall and so on and so forth. So this is kind of the geometry of this process. And um, so in the early days, you know, one of the things that we were excited about was flooding in Sacramento on the American River. And the challenge with this is that we have Folsom Dam. In 1988 and in 1997, there were major flooding in on that catchment. And it got to where the Army Corps of Engineers had to think about whether they were going to blow up all the levees upstream of Sacramento, because if they didn't, they would lose Sacramento. So very catastrophic, right? So 
there was a national academy panel committee on this and you know so i got involved and i was trying to understand this and one of the questions was these are atmos- you know sequences of atmospheric rivers coming and landing in there so when you see them from the satellite this thing is coming you can see it see it see it you know week out so why don't you just release water from the dam and create space for this monster well so in one of those storms um the rain gauge data that i was given showed zero rainfall zero rainfall and the the bloody thing is flooding right so we were wondering what goes on here and what turned out was that the rain gauge was actually located just on the other side of the ridge from where the storm came in so these slight shifts in the storm you know not hundreds of kilometers but tens of kilometers lead to a different hydrological outcome so if these guys had actually followed you know the direction on which, if the storm had gone to where the rain gauge was and they had emptied the reservoir they would be in big trouble because there would be no water supply for san francisco and sacramento down the stretch right so so that gives everybody big pause hey you, you know we can't really predict this so you can't really be taking action on these things well so this brings me to you know reductionistic thinking because as an engineer that's what we are trained to do and as scientists we are also trained to do that even though many scientists don't admit to that we are highly reductionistic so one of the things i had studied because i was interested in nonlinear dynamics was ed lorenz's work on the so called butterfly effect and the common story on that is a butterfly flaps its wings in china and you will get a storm in california well what it's really about is an interaction between the jet stream and what are called the eddies or disturbances that interact with the jet stream so what happens there is that the jet stream if it intersects with a strong eddy that's coming in the jet stream gains strength from the eddies likewise if a weak eddy intersects with the jet stream it could get amplified so you have this push pull kind of dynamic that emerges and uh, so some people may have seen this picture of this butterfly effect so there's the two wings of the butterfly and so on now this is called chaotic because uh it you don't have much predictability in this system it's a jet stream and the eddies which is what we are talking about with the atmospheric rivers really so i had studied this and modeled it and come up with ways to predict things and show where the prediction blows up and all of that uh in the 1990 early 1990s and so my brain went back to that and uh, my next question was could we actually control the behavior of the jet stream and the eddies in a numerical model i want to stop you right okay, there and it. let's get the answer after the break across america bp supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing jobs like building grid scale solar energy in ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas it's and not or see what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com/investinginamerica and we are back on the weather geeks podcast i'm dr marshall shepherd from the university of georgia and i'm speaking with professor umanu law uh and he's talking about atmospheric rivers and he just ended that previous segment with a provocative question 
can he actually adjust or move these atmospheric rivers, perhaps with the idea of, of improving or helping with water resources management? So, uh, Professor Log, what's Thanks. the answer? Yeah, so the way I was putting it was I got interested in the fact that these atmospheric rivers were not predictable, right? And the lack of predictability was to some extent associated with the dynamics of the jet stream and the eddies that interact with it. So we took these Lorenz equations that actually in a very, very idealized way describe that behavior at the planetary scale. And the question I asked was, can I control the chaotic behavior of the Lorenz equations? Can I make this chaotic system predictable? And so since part of my life is trying to be a a mathematical geek, you know, I turned around and I said, okay, let me solve the following problem. Can I minimize the total amount of energy needed with the Lorentz equations so that I can keep the behavior of the jet stream and the eddies in a desirable space? So there are these two wings of the butterfly in the Lorentz system. And what basically happens is that if you stay close to the center of one of the wings, it's very predictable. If you get close to where the two wings basically intersect with each other, you can either jump to the other wing or stay in the current wing and a slight amount of energy jumps you. And so when you try to solve the model, even if there's a numerical error, you know, very, very tiny errors, uh, you, you, you could basically get bounced and then the behavior is completely different in the other one. So my reaction was, okay, well, maybe we can leverage this. And what we can do is at the point where you are losing predictability very, very rapidly, where it's very sensitive to slight perturbations, if I added a slight nudge, can I keep it where I want it to be? You know, I can make a jump to the other wing or stay in there. And so what I did is I solved this mathematical problem, which says minimize the total amount of energy required to keep the behavior you want. Stay on the same wing or jump to the other wing. But do that by applying little nudges at each time step. And the amount, the amount of energy I have to provide at each uh, time step is also bounded. I, I, don't, I, I know I can't provide more than this, so that has to be in there. So that means I'll provide a sequence of tiny, tiny nudges, and can I do this? And the answer is yes. So we take this chaotic attractor, which people say is unpredictable, and that's basically its benchmark story. And we turn that into something that we can actually control. <laughs> Excuse me. And the amount of energy required per step to do this is not actually huge, right? So then the question is, how do I apply this to an atmospheric river? Well, that's that's where I was going next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the same story because, you know, as I said earlier, uh, in the early stages of development of the atmospheric river, it's actually quite predictable. It's when it starts turning and getting entrained with the jet stream that you start losing predictability. So the logic now is, can I apply a little nudge there and um, if I apply that nudge, so think of it as a banana, and it's you know you're you're at the 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 stem of the banana, and things are good, and then the banana is starting to curve. 
So if I want, if as the banana was growing, if I wanted to apply small nudges to that banana, can I have a straight banana coming out instead of a banana shape, right? That's basically what we are talking about. Yeah. And so, so the so if you apply this idea mathematically, we can do this kind of a game. Is my point? Can we do it practically? I have no clue right now. I'm just starting at the point of figuring out what would be ways to apply energy. And the thinking is that if I you know, one of the major uh, energy mechanisms that one could leverage is the latent heat of condensation. So if I could, on the inner curve of the banana, apply a certain amount of energy that sort of straightens that guy out, uh, you could start nudging it. Because as I said, the argument is that I want to use very tiny amounts of energy to very gently nudge this guy over. So as I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to this, I'm talking with the Professor Manu Lal from uh, Columbia. He's also affiliated with IRI as well, which you're, if you're not familiar with that, uh, did his bachelor's degree work in India and then his doctorate and master's degree work in engineering at the University of Texas, Austin. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. There are all kinds of questions that come to mind. I, I want to contextualize why you wanted, might, might want to move this for the, move these rivers for the audience. Because as Professor Law talked about earlier, these things are fairly narrow and the central axis, if you will, of the river can sort of determine whether you get significant rainfall if the meteorological process. One of the things I actually had to correct for the media in recent weeks is I was seeing media headlines calling these atmospheric rivers plumes or ribbons of precipitation and so forth. They're actually plumes of moisture. There is a conversion process meteorologically or graphically that the involving the things that you've talked about that actually takes that moisture and, and realizes it as precipitation. But the axis of landfall can determine uh, whether you're, it's boom or bust in terms of rainfall. And so uh, that then takes me to the ideas that you've been working on for much of your career uh, you mentioned reservoirs earlier in California. And I, ironically, I was just in a meeting yesterday with the uh, ERDIC, the U.S. Army's ERDIC, the uh, Environmental Research Development Center, I believe that's what it stands for. And they were talking about a project that they have um, with Scripps and others looking at optimization of of reservoirs as, as it relates to things like atmospheric rivers. So talk about the sort of practical reasons why you want to do this. Yeah, so... I'm glad you brought that up because we launched into this journey on doing the modification, which is super exciting, but why the hell am I doing it? I should have brought that up to begin with, sorry. Yeah, so let me actually jump totally orthogonally to a related topic in a way. And that is that I encourage the listeners to search for the word arc storm, A-R-K-S-T-O-R-M, like ah, Noah's yes. arc storm and the you'll find a u.s geological survey web page and a bunch of storylines around that which are really truly outstanding in a way uh from a from a weather geek point of view and essentially the story is that in 1862-63 there were a sequence of these atmospheric rivers that kept on coming into california and most of Central California was flooded for six months. Sacramento was basically wiped out. And there was a question as to whether to move Sacramento, the capital of California, or to rebuild it. They chose to rebuild it and you know, eventually added dams to protect it. But 
think about this. If that were to happen today, this is a multi-trillion dollar disaster. Uh, very exciting for people to live in California, you know, to anticipate this. Now, this, it turns out, based on sedimentary evidence gathered by people at the University of California at Santa Barbara, seems to recur with some regularity every 250 years. So we are not close, but, you know, add the climate change story onto it and who knows. Now, the reason I brought this up is that when these atmospheric rivers come in these sequences, remember what I said, the source doesn't change very much. The destination changes, okay? But imagine a situation where the source and the destination don't change because these things are born about every two weeks. Many of them just dissipate over the ocean. But if you get these sequences, you are now in trouble. Now, imagine if we wanted to protect ourselves, there are no amount of dams and levees that are going to save you from this, right? At the same time, you have places like Arizona that may be in drought. You know, Northern California might be the destination of these things. Southern California may be in drought, right? Can we nudge these things so that either they basically blow up over the oceans and don't have landfall? Not all of them, because you might want some of the water, but selectively. Or we can nudge them so that they end up going to a place which is on the border of where it's very dry and very wet. I don't think it's reasonable to try to move it to a place which is totally dry because you would have to overcome a big high pressure system to do that. But to nudge it towards the edge and start modifying the pressure systems in the process, maybe, you know, that's that's the motivation. So uh, another way of saying it is I've been amused in the last year to see that the state of Utah has had active discussions with the governor where they want to build a canal from the Pacific Ocean to bring water to the Great Salt Lake. So funny. Uh, I used to teach at the University of Utah, 1982 to 1986, the Great Salt Lake was flooding, which was the opposite of the phase that we are going through now. And an uh, engineer for the Utah Department of Transportation submitted a proposal to a committee I was on, which was a serious proposal. He wanted to have a nuclear explosion beneath the Great Salt Lake to evaporate it. Now they want water to be brought from the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Colorado wants to move the Mississippi River uh, to Colorado to combat the drought. Gosh, you know, if you're going to entertain those kind of things, maybe you ought to entertain just moving the atmospheric river around so that you get the moisture where you want it. Uh, technologically, it may be a 21st century task, whereas building dams and canals is a 19th century task. Uh, both of them are disruptive. I'm sure that there will be quite a few listeners who want to barbecue me for trying to change the climate. But think about it. We've been modifying our land willy-nilly and have many negative effects from it. So I'm very aware of that. I'm aware that if we start messing around with the world's climate, we have to be very thoughtful about it. Guess what, guys? We have unwittingly messed with the world's climate very significantly. So these are small nudges compared to what we have already done. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I'm speaking with Professor Upmanu Dalal. And... 
really interesting, provocative ideas that he's placed on the table today. Um, you know, there are weather modification activities such as cloud seeding, uh, hail and fog suppression and so forth. So uh, there are certainly efforts of scale where humans either directly or uh, inadvertently do modify uh, weather and climate processes. I've studied for years in my own career how cities impact weather and climate processes in various ways. I, I think you're right. I think there are some people that might be a little scared by what you're proposing. Uh, so I want to get into this last question, because even with some of the larger weather modification projects that we've seen over the past several decades, and some have been fairly inconclusive, frankly, even cloud seeding, although there are countries and companies that do it, the ethical issues. What 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 do you say to those that would say that would be concerned about the ethical issues that you're moving someone's water around or you're stealing someone's water supply to help someone else because those are real issues. And I think the American Meteorological Society has thought about some of these very issues in some of their writings in recent decades as well. Yeah, those are big issues. Uh, my first reaction to that is that a scientific advance that mobilizes social discussion is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Uh, so, so I'll take, I'm going to take refuge in that for begin, to begin with. However, you know, there are some uh, scary thoughts associated with this, which, uh, for example, there's quite a bit of stuff on social media on HARP and how people are trying to do various things. And the 2010, 2011 flooding in Pakistan, the Pakistanis said that's the CIA doing it. They moved the storm and all that. Yeah, I think, you know, once you demonstrate or if you demonstrate that something like this is feasible, there are a host of those issues that do emerge and the responsibility aspects emerge. Um, I put that in the same category as who is responsible for the fact that Western mining companies, for instance, have created huge pollution pools in developing countries where they are mining materials that are going to give us the green economy. That's a responsibility question that I think is not discussed in the same way because the people who are impacted are not us here. So I think the ethics question that we face with any kind of modification of the planet, whether it be mining or whether it be meteorological modifications or whether it is building dams, every single time is going to have to be ethically determined. But having tools in your arsenal is not a bad thing. Yeah, and that's you know one of the big discussions right now as we deal with climate change. I think that sort of Obvious the solutions are centered around mitigation or reduction of carbon emissions and adaptation where we can. But there is this realm of climate intervention or geoengineering yeah. and some of those same ethics questions. And I think for, for the most part, many people see climate intervention or geoengineering as sort of sort of further down the road type solutions. But there are central ethical issues uh, around those. And again, I, 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 I think there are real questions that have to be addressed. There's real feasibility studies in terms of whether it can actually be done in terms of that little nudge of energy through initiated convection. I mean, I, I don't know what you would even have in mind, whether it's perhaps some seeding or some forth to sort of grow some convection or it's latent heat, but it's really a fascinating discussion. 
Uh, it's what Weather Geeks really is about. We like to geek out on all kinds of ideas. But I want to use this last segment of the podcast to just talk about I mean, your just broader other things that you, you've you been working on in recent years beyond the atmospheric rivers, because I, I know you are, are thinking about the water problem at various scales and from a different perspective. So just give us a, a sort of a, a list of some of the things, the other things you're up to. Yeah, I I end up being highly distracted and work on too many things. So I'll choose a couple. Uh, most recently, I'm very concerned about the state of America's water infrastructure. And the, the sad thing is that you see Jackson, Mississippi flaring up, you see Flint, Michigan flaring up, but you don't hear about the hundreds and thousands of communities that are actually suffering similar problems because they are too small. And unfortunately, most of those communities are communities of color. They're, uh, and if they are not communities of color, uh, they are still relatively poorer communities. And I'm just amazed that, you know, in all the polarization that goes on in Congress and so on, they miss this very basic situation where with the aging infrastructure that we have, people are suffering bad quality water. Bottled water sales are now have eclipsed all other beverage sales. And this is a necessity sale, not a luxury scale. It's not because tens of thousands of more people are going hiking in the mountains and need to carry bottled water with them. Uh, it's the necessity aspect, and it's the necessity aspect for poor communities where people get sick. I've had single moms call me from New Jersey and say, you know, I moved apartments because there was lead in the water in the previous apartment and the new apartment I moved into. Now I'm told that this city may also have a problem and they want me to pay $150 to just test the water. What do I do? This is criminal. We should not be at this situation in the country. Now, part of this is due to the fact that we in the engineering community have had a gap with how we have been thinking about these things. What has happened in the time since I graduated and now is that now every engineer in academia is told they need to be a scientist. Engineers are these lower class people and scientists are is where it's at. So you have to come up with something new. However, something new is typically very incremental. You know, and it's not really anything new, but that's what we have become as an academic society. So I'm really depressed by that in sometimes sometimes. Well, I, I will say as a, a recently elected member of the National Academy of Engineering and the National Academy of Sciences, I see them equally. And I think exactly. we're all gonna have to work together to yeah. solve the challenges facing our, our society. So, you know, what we are supporting in academia is research on a moonshot on how we are going to treat water more efficiently. Wonderful. I'm all for it. But what about actually coming up with a better architecture for the water and wastewater system so that we have better services for people? That's the real reason we are doing the research on better treatment methods, isn't it? But we have nothing hardly going in that direction. So what I've been looking at and what I've converged towards is the idea that when I look at Alabama, where people have septic tanks that don't work, and they were getting jailed because they didn't meet the legal criteria for proper waste disposal, etc. We need a solution for these people. That's a modern solution. 
that leverages these higher-end treatment technologies but puts them at the neighborhood scale, not in a big treatment plan with big sewer lines that they could never afford. So this is something I'm working on. Same thing on the drinking water side. And, you know, universally, I'm gravitating to the idea that small is big. So if we have local systems that people can see, they own, they understand. So instead of bottled water, get a system from Amazon that does a reverse osmosis in your kitchen. The concern is about drinking the water. It's not about flushing the toilet with water. It's not about the laundry. Let me put it in very concrete terms. City of Jackson, Mississippi has had boil water notices for years now. Uh, periodically, they make the national news, but they come back. They need $1.8 billion, is what I read in the paper, to fix their treatment plan, fix their broken pipes. Okay, The city has been recently giving out $6 a person per day to go and buy bottled water. $6 per day is $200 a month, roughly, right? Okay, let's say there's a family of four. This is $800 for that family per month. I'm glad they are doing this. No knocks. I can go and buy a high-end reverse osmosis system at Amazon on sale for $300. $400 not on sale. Okay, this removes every goddamn thing, basically. It produces 1,000 gallons per day rated capacity. Filters cost $200, need replacement once in two years. Look at spending $200 per person per, per month from the city to address this thing. And you still don't know what you're drinking. You know, you got a few bottles of water. Great. Thanks. Plastic generated from that. Compare that to doing this. Why isn't the city of Jackson, Mississippi not doing a pilot project saying, hey, vendor on Amazon or vendor whoever, put it out for bid. Go and install this system in every house in the city. Compare that to $1.8 billion. This is a $100 million item. You know, even if you ask the people to pay $200 for security, people will come up with $200. $1.8 billion divided by the population is $50,000 per head. That's not going to happen, guys. You know, so I'm, I'm trying to look at ways by which we could do localized system solutions that could be done now. I'm not interested in, in 20 years, we'll have a moonshot to do something. This is one end of it. We have 90,000 dams in the country that are over 70 years old now, on average. These were designed to last for 50 years. They will probably last longer, but they are not being inspected. Guess where they are? They are again above cities which are small, which have populations of color, they have contaminated sediments behind them. A big rainfall event following a wet period will knock these guys over. Now what do we do? The water supply of that city is gone. That's a long-term loss. People are going to be wiped out. Power plants below that are going to be wiped out. Are we addressing this? This is not part of the conversation. Uh, I talked to the Congressional Committee on uh, Hydropower Water Resources Infrastructure. They informed me that Congress has allocated $3 billion to fix these dams. I was going, okay, good. I didn't know that. That's great. Then one of the members said, oh, Professor, do you know that this is over the next 30 years, $100 million a year? So I'm going, okay, I can tell you that a single dam will require more than $100 million. So, you know, we have to think about what we are really doing here. Because with the climate adaptation game, if you're going to get more storms, uh, are we going to build new dams? Are we even going to fix old dams? This is not the conversation.
at all. Yeah, I think that I think that you're really onto something with the infrastructure nexus to extreme weather events and climate. Uh, I'm thinking about and serving on a National Academy's uh, activity right now, looking at compound events in the Gulf region related to yeah. hurricane storms and even the COVID and the infrastructure. So, I mean, you're, you're, you know, unfortunately that's a different podcast in itself. I'd love to sit and chat with you about, but we have to end this one. This has been an amazing discussion as I knew it would uh, with Professor Law. I want to thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you so much for asking me to come. And I look forward to talking to you further. I'll actually give you a call. Absolutely. Uh, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and we will see you next time on Weather Geeks. 